0: I would be very nervous, as I'm sure they are, that in the future, the SEC and the Big Ten get so big that they have all the weight in the world to throw around the room. They have to sign off on expansion. They have to sign off on a new playoff contract just like everyone else does. And I don't think you're ever getting their signature in 2026 and beyond on a playoff media rights deal that includes automatic qualifier status. In other words, grants the same guaranteed access to other conferences as it does to them.
1: A lot's changed. A lot's changed since we were with you last. We've been off for a week. We hope you guys all had a terrific holiday break. Whether it was spending it with family, whether you're watching bowl games. I know I've watched a million of them. I even watched some NFL. I even watched some NFL on Christmas Day. I will admit, I was all in on the triple header in the NFL. I just couldn't get enough football, and I hope you guys have had a terrific week. We have not been here in a while, so a lot's changed to help bring us back into the college football mix, we had to bring in Josh Pate. He does an amazing job at late kick with Josh Pate, so we wanted to have him on. I was on his show a couple days ago, so it's been great to be able to kind of bounce things around with him between the conversation that we have here today and the conversation that we had last week on his show. We basically have had, I mean, an hour to just kick around all these awesome college football topics, including what's going on with Florida State where are they? What are they doing? And what could happen with them here in the next two or three years? You don't want to miss that. We'll break down the playoff games as well with Josh Pates. We'll talk about those games with him. We're also going to break down the other New Year's Six games that are coming up. We have the Peach Bowl. We have the Cotton Bowl. We also are going to get into uh, what I think is a terrific Orange Bowl. I know people are like, well, Florida State opting out, all this other stuff. I, I get all that, but I'm still excited about the game. Goodness gracious. So we will break those games down. We have some news and notes, too. Offensive coordinator coordinators on the move from the Bayou to South Bend. We're going to talk about Jerry Kill and his uh, immediate resignation and retirement. So happy for him. are going to talk about a move that just makes me feel uncomfortable in the portal. I'm just never going to be okay with this particular move. And – Other moves like this move, so we'll talk about that. And Ole Miss lands another big fish in the portal. We'll tell you who and what it might mean for them on the defensive side of the football here in 2024 and beyond. So without much further ado, let's kick things off. Let's late kick things off with Josh Pate. So happy to have the king of YouTube college football, I think, shows in general clat can have his numbers and all that stuff but late kick with Josh Pate it is the number one show on YouTube and if you don't know that I just have to check our comments every time yeah this show's fine but it's no Josh Pate which oh. is perfectly okay because I am a consumer of late kick as well so Josh Pate joins the show Josh we appreciate it my friend how you yeah, doing I
0: just want Gregory I just want you to know I don't send those people to your comment section it happens <laughs> organically and you know you're doing you wouldn't be calling a playoff game if you weren't doing good
1: work brother Well, I think it's producer Colin with several different, uh, you know, I I think he's probably going around and and just constant propaganda. Is it producer Colin? I mean, he hasn't worked all month, so he's basically been off. So maybe he's had time to get on some of the burner accounts and and go go full throttle. Look, if he is, then that (laughs) constitutes a raise.
0: Like, that's getting the job done. If I'm going to give you off time, I expect you to spend it constructively.
1: Sounds like he's doing that, buddy. We'll get things started with the Florida State angle. And you and I saw on your show... Uh, just the other day, and I think we see the world through this through a similar lens. Um, nothing about what happened to Florida State is fair. Nothing about what happened to Florida State is right. Um, but based on the committee's criteria, it's hard to really it's hard to really look at it and feel like they got it wrong. But it's also hard to look at it and feel like they did the right thing either. So, uh, I guess just kind of open ended to you, how do you feel about Florida State's exclusion from the college football playoff? Well.
0: Uh, so I think I've I've gone in depth on this three or four times on my show. I had you on. We went in depth again, and <laughs> like diehard P1 listeners and viewers of my show will still hit me up and say, "I still don't get how you feel," because it's not like fortune cookie logic or bumper sticker <laughs> logic. You can't sum it up that quick. Um, so my feeling is is dual in nature. First off. I've got my own personal feelings, and like I told you the other day, I readily admit the committee should never go by my protocols. If we went by my protocols, the world would burn to the ground. So I'm one of the very, very few people who say, both I think this, but it shouldn't be this way. And I think Bama should have been in. Now, whether it should or shouldn't have been that way is another conversation, but I thought they should have been in. In other words, I would have put them in if I'm running the playoff, but that's based on my own criteria. Then, we, we period. That sentence is done, Greg. Then we go over here to the other lane. And this is the lane that the committee drives in. This is the lane where the protocols and the criteria have been, at least we thought, established over <laughs> a decade now. And I thought based on what they've done Throughout history, up until the week before the selection Sunday was announced, when all of a sudden Hancock comes out and says, oh, we're not interested in most deserving. That's not even in our our, that's not even in our uh, diction. That's not even in our language. We're interested in putting best for in. Up until that point, they had operated a certain way. And then I thought they swerved at the 11th hour for reasons that are endlessly speculative in nature. Everyone has a theory on it, but I thought they swerved at the 11th hour. I thought Florida State got screwed as a result of that. And so, as you can see, that sounds very convoluted, because I just (laughs) told you I think FSU got screwed, but also I think Bama should have been in. It all has to do with which lens I'm looking through. In the the committee lens, I think Florida State should have been in. In the JP lens, we got the right four teams in.
1: And it's hard to push back on any of that. I think you and I feel the same way. I mean, there are days where I look at what happened to Florida State, and I I feel bad about it, but I acknowledge that it was probably the right thing to do. Uh, At the same time, we are living in an imperfect system. And if you want to have frustrations, you don't necessarily have to have frustrations with the outcome. You should have frustrations with the process, or you should have frustrations with the criteria, or you should have frustration with the fact that we just have four teams in the playoff when it could have been 12 this year. But because of the alliance, we decided against moving to a 12-team playoff in 2023. So all of these things could have been avoided, and yet they weren't. So I I get the frustration with Florida State fans. I don't know if they're ever going to forget what happened to them. But I do think, if I'm a Florida State fan, I'm crazy optimistic about the fact that there are, as of this moment, automatic qualifiers built into the 24 playoff and the 25 playoff. I am the best program at the moment. In the ACC. Now, I think Clemson's coming. I think they're going to be back next year and probably going to be very competitive. But if I'm Florida State, I know I'm not thrilled with my alignment with the ACC, but I'm thrilled that I'm probably going to have a very, very manageable path to a playoff spot for the foreseeable future. So how would you handle it if you were Florida State and you were trying to figure out what's best for the future of the program with your current relationship with the ACC?
0: So I'm a little bit in the other side of that camp. I wouldn't feel as confident. I'd feel ultra confident in my program. i feel confident I got the right guy. I'd have a ton of trepidation right now, and they do, obviously, with the movement that's happened down there, as to the future of my alignment with the conference and what is and isn't going to be automatically given to us in the future. So you're right. Like the next two years, we've got AQ status attached to these conferences. And certainly if if Florida State had a season even remotely comparable to what they just did over the coming seasons, they'll be in, no problem. And they probably would be anyway if we're being real with ourselves in any kind of 12-team format. But man, like nothing is certain beyond 2025, I guess it is. And I would be very nervous, as I'm sure they are, that in the future, the SEC and the Big Ten get so big that they have all the weight in the world to throw around the room. They have to sign off on expansion. They have to sign off on a new playoff contract just like everyone else does. And I don't think you're ever getting their signature in 2026 and beyond on a playoff slash media rights deal that includes automatic qualifier status. In other, in other words, grants the same guaranteed access to other conferences as it does to them. Because they don't have to, Greg. And so that's why I think the Florida States of the world are moving as quickly as they can within the world of collegiate athletics to get out of their current setup in the ACC and, and migrate to one of those conferences. But look, here here's the end result, okay? As a Florida State fan, you have no control over that. Mike Norvell doesn't even have control over that. And honestly, Mike Norvell probably wouldn't even know the future of his program any more than we do right now on that front. But what you do know is... They've proven to be one of the best portal organizations in college football. Now they're recruiting at a top five level. There's zero doubt about whether Mike Norvell is or isn't cut out to make the G5 to P5 jump, which is always treacherous. Billy Napier is dealing with it right now at Florida. And so, like, a lot of the boxes that are within your control are checked in bright green Sharpie. I'm of the belief the future will sort itself out. Like, I cannot envision a world in the future of college football where a Florida State falls by the wayside, where a Clemson or a Miami falls by the wayside. Whatever the future entails, those programs will be part of it. I just think it's so foggy when you
1: look off in the distance. We don't exactly know what that looks like right now. It's impossible. I mean, I, I, I don't have any idea. But every single person that's, quote, in the know says that realignment's not done. Like, it's it's, right. it's going to continue. Like I, When it, two years from now, three years from now, I mean, I talked to Kyle Whittingham about this last week. He goes, yep, we're in the Big 12 for now, but who knows? This whole thing could shake up again in three years. Who knows? Uh, So I think that it is kind of chaotic, but I do think that among all the teams that are not in the Big 10 and the SEC, there is no one that's better positioned than Florida State, Clemson, and Miami. Like, those are the three, without question, that are in the best spot to potentially make a move. I would also probably add North Carolina to that quartet, Because I think North Carolina can add a lot in hoops, and it's obviously a bit of an untapped resource for the SEC and the Big Ten. If they were to expand, everyone wants to get to North Carolina. I think Virginia, one of the two Virginia schools, Virginia-Virginia Tech, doesn't matter. Either way, getting to the Commonwealth would be beneficial to both of those leagues. So if you were advising the teams in the ACC, what advice would you give them to make sure that three years from now when we press the reset button and start from scratch – They're well-positioned to be a contender, and maybe uh, even in a new conference at that point. Uh, Communicate. (laughs) It's it's just like it's so easy and it's so hard. How how
0: far far down the wrong dead-end roads have we gone in this sport because of lack of communication? And Greg, even when we had communication, it was this pseudo back channel garbage (laughs) that brought us things like the alliance which is just an utter disastrous chapter in the history of our sport so communicate man it doesn't even matter i mean if i'm florida state and i'm miami yes they're my bitter rival yes i'm competing with them on the field on the court etc but dude in the grand scheme of things a higher tide raises all of our boats and right. conversely, you know, 13 cannonball shots to each of us will sink all of our boats. So we can't afford that. <laughs> so let's just communicate uh, the way that the Big Ten and the SEC do a pretty good job of, the way that the Pac-12 did a horrendous job of. And so there's there are two case studies right there of, of kind of divergent paths you can go down as a conference. And if you're not going to be even part of your conference, just like keep the lines of communication open. And then in the short term... You've got to best position yourself, uh, not just on the field in terms of results, but behind the scenes, they know exactly what I'm talking about with this. You've got to make sure your infrastructure, both tangible and intangible, is beefed up to the point where when I walk past you, I cannot ignore you on that aisle. You are inventory in this conversation. You are inventory, and you've got to be a, a property that I cannot do without, whether I'm a television executive or I run a conference, and sometimes those, those things merge I can't do without you. Um, that takes coordination. That takes alignment behind the scenes. And hey, you know another program I wonder about? By the way, not to just go down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think like eighty percent of even hardcore fans even know that SMU is joining the ACC next year. Right. Just to throw just to throw a random program out there, and. You've at the same time got programs fighting and clawing and, and you know crawling over broken glass trying to try and get out of the ACC. And every now and then you hear rumblings that hey man, this thing could be moving really really quickly. What is SMU even joining? And they're declining, taking a media rights check just to get in the conference. I don't know, man. I would be signing every contract in pencil right now. I know the lawyers forbid that, but I would not sign in pen. Sign that thing in pencil.
1: I think that's good advice. Communicate and collaborate, I think, is is something that would be a a good first step for sure when thinking about the possible movement that's coming.
0: This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight. S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be.
1: Hey, college football fans. Whether you're on the field or in the stands, make sure you're well protected. Like having a solid defense to shut down that wide receiver in the final quarter opening lanes for your running backs to do their thing, and, of course, reliability when protecting your quarterback because great coverage is a game-changer. That's why Allstate provides that same protection off the field, giving you reliable coverage and game-winning protection for everything that matters, helping you stay game-day ready every day. So get protected with Allstate. Visit Allstate.com or call a local agent today to learn more. Brought to you by Allstate. You're in good hands. Insurance coverage is subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. All right, let's get into some of these playoff games. Uh, Let's start with the Rose Bowl. That's the one that kicks off before the Sugar, so we'll start there. Bama, Michigan. Uh, you have a great sense of of the Bama fan base. You have a great sense of the Michigan fan base. You have a great sense of both teams. Uh, What are you most excited about when it comes to that matchup? Uh,
0: How how successful Alabama is in testing a lot of the theories about Michigan. You know, there's a theory out there, very prevalent, that uh, Michigan – has beefed up their statistical profile by feasting on total inferiority in the Big Ten in, in terms of offense. Now, I've got a theory that I call the freeze point. And that is if you don't meet a certain level, a certain caliber of play, you could you could never do anything against the elite teams in college football. Now, if you do meet the freeze point, point, like, and the reason I call it that is if you don't get below 32.4 degrees, it doesn't matter. Water can sit at 33 degrees forever. It won't freeze. But once it's below 32.4, then it's only a matter of time to see how long it freezes. Most teams don't get below that against these, against these elite programs, but if you do, then you can do some business against them. No one aside from Ohio State, and I include Penn State in this, no one aside from Ohio State offensively got below the freeze point against Michigan this year. Maryland had a shot to do it. Otherwise, no one had a shot to do that. Alabama does. And so you're talking about a top three defense in in virtually every statistical category. And yet, I could also envision a scenario, Greg, where we're watching it and you're you're winding down the clock in the second quarter, getting towards halftime, and already that box score looks kind of wobbly for Michigan. And defensively, they've given up percentage-wise a lot more than they normally would. Um, I could see that. I could also see them giving Alabama a ton of issues moving the ball. I think that there's always this feeling, and there is in this game, amongst both fan bases, you're setting yourself up for heartbreak, that there's going to be some massive, huge edge that someone has. I don't see any huge edges here. Like I see incremental here, incremental there, fractions of inches over there and here. I think uh, J.J. McCarthy's capability will be put to the test here. If you're a believer that he was banged up, and the back half of the season, which overlapped with facing the best defensive teams they faced all year, then maybe the three week layoff gives him time to heal. Um, I also think that, you know, Michigan being able to force short fields this year was huge for them. You look at their offensive numbers, they're, they're pedestrian, but you have to take that into the context of how many short fields they were set up with. I mean, that's a very complimentary football team. Uh, defensively they score a lot and when they don't score, they set the offensive short fields. Um, If if Bama can prevent that, if you told Nick Saban nothing more than you're going to force them to start inside the 25, inside their own 25, every drive next Monday night, I think he'd feel pretty confident about what the result's going to be, but here's what would make me most nervous. I don't know how you see this game, but what makes me most nervous, if I'm Michigan, is what if Alabama pressures J.J. McCarthy, which I think they will, and what if we can't run the ball effectively against them? which I think they'll struggle to do. That's what made me lean Alabama a lot more so than before I looked at the game because there is no path. If Michigan can't run the ball, there is no path. There's a path if Bama can't run the ball. I don't see one from Michigan.
1: It's hard to push back on that. I do think there are aspects of the Auburn plan. I think Hugh Freeze had a really good plan, being able to create holes and seams in the run game, utilize some quarterback run. I do think there there is a piece of that plan that could be applied to Michigan's plan. Uh, so, I do think that it's going to be difficult for them to consistently create big plays. I think they could churn it out, shrink the game, shorten the game, and and this thing could very well be a 17 13 ball game. But I really think it comes down to turnovers. I mean, I, I think JJ McCarthy is going to have to play out of his mind, but Bam is also going to have to be really smart when it comes to when they take chances because with. Their defense, Michigan's defense, a lot of zone, a lot of eyes in the backfield, and they force a lot of turnovers. So I think if Bama has a clean sheet offensively with zero turnovers, they'll be in a really good spot. But if they turn it over, the door opens. And we already saw that's what happened when they played Ohio State. Door opens, pick, right down the field, six yards, I think they had to go. Uh, so they didn't exactly go right down the field. But it was pretty, pretty easy for them. But turnovers, I think, might ultimately tell the story in this one. Moving over to the other game. And, and th- I, I personally think that if you're a casual, your word, uh, if you're a casual, this game, even though it doesn't have the helmets that you'll have with Bama and Michigan... Uh, And the tradition of Bama, Michigan, this game is going to be more appetizing because I think it could be a track meet. I really believe that. Texas and Washington both have elite offenses. Both have liabilities on defense at times, especially in the secondary and at safety in particular. So when you look at this game, are you thinking it's going to be a high scoring affair like everybody else is as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, You you got a good one, man. That nightcap is going to be a really good one. I think the public knee jerk reaction when they saw this matchup set was heavy Texas. And then I think the public started to dive in a little bit more, and they say, oh, wait, Washington's got the number one passing offense of the country, Texas, pass defense in the 90s, depending on you know which statistical category you prefer the most. Might this be a matchup nightmare for Texas? And then I think there's a third dive you have to take. So we have to triple dive this thing <laughs> in order to really arrive at what I think the picture is that we'll see unfold in the Superdome, and that is... Yes, those stats are what they are, but contrary to the title of a show that used to air on your network a lot, uh, numbers do lie. They lie to you all the time (laughs) if you don't know how to interpret them. you got to know Texas. You know this because you've watched all their games. I'm not sure everyone watched all of Texas's games this year and understands they got up big a lot, and teams had to play catch-up a lot, and that means throwing the ball a lot. It also means a certain kind of softer defensive coverage from Texas a lot, and what it did is it stacked up passing yards against them, even in wins. And so, yeah, man, if Texas is up 24-3, I don't doubt Michael Penix is going to be able to move the ball through the air. It's if he can move it through the air if it's 10-10 to early in the second quarter that I care about. And I still think he can. I just think if they if they're successful with that, it's just going to be because Washington's that good. It's not going to be because Texas is a nightmare on the back end of their defense. But what they need and what they had – in those two Oregon games, is just chain movers on third down. Like, Oregon, on paper, should have won both of those games because Oregon, on paper, going into it, looked like a huge edge team on third down. Well, I got the numbers in front of me. Um, They were, Washington being they, they were 15 of 26 on third down, 17 of 30 on third and fourth down versus Oregon. Texas has the number two third down defense in the country. Okay, so yet again, I find myself looking at a Washington game saying, Third down is going to determine this. But I'm not so confident in that Texas statistic because Oregon was top five. Both times they played them, and it just didn't matter. Um, I also think that Texas is, you know, I saw him in the Red River game against Oklahoma. That was their worst turnover day. I mean, they were inside the the 10 a couple of times and came away with zero points. Uh, if Washington could force that, that's a big deal. But I think the other thing, Greg, and you're you're probably going to have as much fun trying to explain this to a national audience as anyone has all year, is Texas will not severely out-athlete Washington. And the national expectation is you'll tune in and you'll see you'll see Washington trying to punch up athletically just to stay in this game. That is not the case. Mm-hmm. This wide receiver core is insane. The offensive line just won the Joe Moore Award. So finally <laughs> on the back end of the season, Kublick and company have, have beat the propaganda bell enough to where they can get them some recognition. I picked Texas to win this game. I have learned my lesson picking against Washington, though. Obviously not to the, the degree that I'm going to pick them, but, man, there's like a, it's like a 52-48, 53-47 proposition in my mind, not in terms of final score, but percentage-wise. Could be final score, yeah, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that also could be the final score. So it's going to be I, – I don't think there's any skill in saying this is going to be a last team with the ball win sort of situation. I've never thought there's skill
1: in knowing that. I do think it's decided in the fourth quarter, though. It'd be hard to push back on that. Lastly, we'll get you out of here on this. You work at 247 uh, and and part of the CBS You guys just do an amazing job. I'm not great at recruiting. You guys do a great job. You're all over it. But Washington winning the national championship would do what? For how people perceive recruiting rankings and things like that. Because if you look at their composite, and I I look at the 247 composite, Washington, they're going to have seven guys drafted in the top 100 picks. I mean, they have that many guys but would there be a would there be an altering to how we perceive teams moving forward because Washington would really be the first national champion that we've had in, what, 20, 25 years that didn't check all those crazy personnel boxes as far as recruiting rankings are concerned. So since you're so close to it, how do you think that would alter the the perception of how you can recruit and, and whether or not you have to recruit at the highest possible level to win championships?
0: I've never thought you have to. I've thought if you can get a franchise caliber quarterback in and have him play that way, you can you can get it done with a pretty good roster that has exceptional dots across it. If you've got an exceptional room, like a wide receiver room, it really helps. If your exceptional room is your offensive line room, I think it would catch a lot of people off guard. I don't think it would catch so many people off guard who have seen Washington a lot this year. Um, but also, just if we're talking data, you were the math guy. I'm not. But I know in data and clustering, you always have to account for the possibility that There are going to be one or two dots that are just way off the chart and off the grid. And we call those outliers. We don't shift the X and Y axis all the way over here to meet the outlier. We just circle it. We say, oh, look at that, an outlier. All right, well, we're going to still think a lot of what we've already thought. I mean... You've got to be good lines of scrimmage. You've got to recruit them from the high school level. You got to be good in the portal at times, and especially at quarterback, if you're going to use it. And if you do that and you've got a phenomenal head coach and an organization that is built on rock, solid value and principle, you're going to have a shot. But even then, it all has to come together. Like they won how many one possession games this year? Like that's the way it would have to come together. And if all of those, all of those tumblers align. You don't have to be a top-five recruiter. you got to be pretty good, but you don't have to be a top-five recruiter. But if you want to play a B-minus game a couple of times along the way and win it, you absolutely have to be a top-five or top-ten recruiter.
1: It's amazing, though, the amount of casuals. And like I said, your word, I think it's very appropriate, that are comparing – Washington to TCU from a year ago, and that Dude, could not whoa. be further from the <laughs> truth. Like, yeah. Have you not heard? How many people have asked you that? Like, I feel like everyone thinks, "Oh yeah, they're going to be just like TCU." Why? Because they're purple and they throw it around the yard. Like, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't get it. Like, I, so have you not dealt with that? I feel yeah. like I'm talking like myself around crazy pills, man, like Mugatu style, because I just don't understand why people are having that comparison.
0: Greg, I have never, um, I've never had staffers with a team that's going into a national championship game, just nonchalantly telling me, game's over, man. Like There's no chance we're losing this Monday night. That was Georgia last year. And it wasn't cockiness. It was a matter of fact, we just won the title when we beat Ohio State. I mean, there is zero chance this team is going to get obliterated. I know some people at Alabama who were assisting Saban because he went out there and he did some of the pregame coverage for ESPN. And it's like they're trying to, what do we even say? Like, like what do we want him to say? There is no path for TCU. Everyone knew it behind the scenes. No one wanted to say it up front because you wanted to to at least maintain the illusion that you could get a game. No, that is not this year. If Washington's (laughs) in that game, that is, this this year's Washington team would body bag last year's TCU team. Let me put it that way.
1: Yeah. Absolutely kill him, buddy. This has been terrific. Uh, as always, um, I maybe am secretly rooting for Washington just so you have to explain the JP poll to everybody. I really, really want that. I want you to get your eye, Josh, out and have to explain that. Is there is there a possibility that like, will there be like a, I think you'll have to play your music that you always play, right? in yeah. the event and just RIP in memoriam, JP poll? Well, look, if that happens, um, this,
0: is going to, this is going to be a mutually assured destruction situation because I happen to know there is some, some fuzzy B-roll of you throwing the horns down in the Rose Bowl circa 09. <laughs> so if that needs to be floated and dug up, I will be the one fair to dig it. up. If I'm going down, you're going down with me.
1: That's perfectly fair. We'll go down together. Buddy, this has been terrific. Always appreciate your show. You do an amazing job. You do it the right way. Check them out, Late Kick with Josh Pate on YouTube. You can download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. He does an amazing job. So Josh, we appreciate you, brother. I appreciate it, buddy. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Introducing the AT&T 5G helmet, the world's first football helmet designed to level the playing field for deaf and hard of hearing players. Radio communication continues to be the primary way professional football coaches and players communicate during the game. But if the highest level of football requires athletes to hear, presents a significant gap for athletes that cannot. This discovery created an opportunity to apply the power of AT&T's 5G technology to make sports more inclusive. AT&T is a staple of college sports, always exploring ways to use the expertise in connectivity to advance the way coaches, athletes, and fans experience the game. Our collaboration led to the first ever 5G connected helmet. It sends the coach's play call from the device on the sidelines directly to a visual display lens on the helmet, meaning it does not rely on sound or hearing to communicate. So for the first time ever, these players can always get the same information from their coach as their hearing counterparts. The AT&T 5G Helmet. AT&T connecting changes everything. Learn more at at and dot com slash 5g helmet helmet is not for sale at and t is a proud supporter of the Gallaudet Bison time to get into some game breakdowns we'll get things kicked off on Friday night the Goodyear Cotton Bowl Classic this will be December 29th, eight p.m. Eastern time from at and t Stadium in Arlington line opened around Ohio State slight favorite that thing's now flipped just a little bit Missouri is now a slight favorite. At about one, one and a half, in some places it's two. You always gotta check the transfer portal. (laughs) You always gotta check whether or not guys have opted out. And as of right now, things are a little bit fuzzy as it relates to Ohio State. Um, We know Colin McCord's not there, he's transferring to Syracuse. We know that Julian Fleming is not there either, he also has entered the portal. There could be many more opt-outs, including Marvin Harrison, uh, who was not with the team at practice on Tuesday. So there are, at the moment, at least a couple of guys that are potentially not going to be available in this game. So we will operate under the assumption of these guys playing. Why not, right? Let's Let's just pretend like everyone's going, and we'll break them down accordingly, okay? We'll just do our best, and if things change at the last minute, then scrap the breakdown and... Do what you got to do. All right, let's start with Missouri because I don't think people are as familiar with Missouri. I, I know they've had a great year. I think everybody acknowledges and respects the fact that they finished 10-2. and Their two losses came in a tough, close, high-scoring battle against LSU, and they, of course, played Georgia better than anybody in the regular season. So we look at Missouri, and the key player for them is Cody Schrader. Uh, really a remarkable, a remarkable season for Cody Schrader. I am a voter in the Doak Walker Award. I thought Cody Schrader probably should have won it, was perfectly fine with Ollie Gordon winning it. He's elite as well, but this is really more about what Missouri has become. Now, if you look at Eli Drinkwitz's offense in the past, they're a stretch zone team. They want to get to the perimeter and they've had great success doing that, not just at Missouri, but at his prior time at NC State as an OC. And then when he was the head coach at App State there for the year, It's what they do. They run a great zone scheme, off tackle stretch zone and it's tough to stop because you have a decisive runner in Cody Schrader that's been amazing you also have a 3,000 yard passer in Brady Cook who I think is universally underappreciated now he's not crazy elite I don't think he's going to get drafted in the first round but I do think he's a guy that has a really high ceiling he's been really accurate has made great decisions and they have a blue chip 1200 yard receiver in Luther Burden. They also have a first-team all-SEC left tackle in Javon Foster. They have a great defensive end in Darius Robinson. They have an incredible corner in Chris Abrams' drain. But if you really look at what it all comes down to, this team's emergence this year has in large part been due to what Cody Schrader's been able to do in toting the rock. Over the last five games, he averaged 196 yards from scrimmage and 6.3 yards per carry. All right? remarkably consistent, remarkably efficient. And he also ran for 112 yards against Georgia. That's a ridiculous number, (laughs) especially when you think about what Georgia's done traditionally to running backs. But I do think maybe the guy that you need to know a little more about, especially considering who they're playing against, Chris Abrams Drain is their corner that is elite. Now, they did allow uh, a quarterback to put up You know, over 150 on the passer rating on just three occasions this year. They lost to LSU and Georgia, and then they had a surprising near loss to Florida. Those are really the three games in which they didn't play great in the back end. But the secondary for Missouri has arguably been their best attribute, especially on the defensive side. They are really good. And Chris Abrams drains a big reason why. On the season, he's got four picks. 10 PBUs, he allows just 36% completion, and he allows just a 12, a 12 on the QBR. And remember, QBR is a scale from one to 100, well, really one to 99. Having a 12 means that you're doing a pretty good job. All right, it's pretty amazing when you think about what he's been able to do. And in the event in which Ohio State is at full go, which I don't think they will be, but let's operate under the assumption that they will be, Chris Abrams-Drain matched up against Marvin Harrison, That one is one where you're going to need to get your popcorn ready because that's going to be a pretty dang impressive matchup between the two. Missouri's path to victory is very clear. They have to run the football, and they have to be more inspired. And I think they will be. If you look at what Missouri is potentially looking at, their first top 10 finish in 10 years. And if you look at their current opt-out situation, there is not a single guy from Missouri that has opted out. So it's pretty clear that they're going to be the team that's more intact. And probably as a result of the lack of opt-outs, they're clearly going to be the team that's probably a little bit more motivated. But can they play over the course of a 60-minute ball game against a team that's got crazy juice? We know exactly who Ohio State is. Everybody knows what Ohio State is. And they played up to the top. They played really well on the road in Athens against the Georgia Bulldogs. But will they be able to repeat a comparable performance against Ohio State? For Ohio State, I think the key player is Marvin Harrison. He's been the guy all year long. Uh, When you look at just how he's accomplished, he's been amazing. If you look at what he had last year, he's been amazing. So it's really been two straight years where he's been just absolutely ridiculous. He became the first receiver in Ohio State history to record thousand yard seasons in consecutive years. Last year, 1263, this year, 1211, went for 28 touchdowns in each of the last two years as well. So 14 this year, 14 last year, it's ridiculous, right? Those 14 touchdowns, it's a four-way tie for second in the country. He's had at least one touchdown catch in each of the Buckeyes' last eight games and hauled in two touchdowns, in a game during the three-game stretch. That was against Wisconsin, Rutgers, and Michigan State. So he's really been amazing. He's going to be, I think, by far, if he goes, the most important part of what Ohio State's trying to do offensively. Travion Henderson, their running back, is also elite. Now, if you look at what Travion Henderson has meant to this team, when he's been healthy, it's been a completely different-looking unit. A completely different-looking unit. And if you look at the time that he missed, he still had nearly 1,000 yards. He went for 854 and 11 touchdowns. But he could be massive to kind of take some of the pressure off of Devin Brown. And knowing, too, that if the strength of Missouri's defense is in the back end, in the secondary, they're probably going to have to try to run the football. I mean, he did an amazing job against Notre Dame, uh, who – on 14 carries he went for over 100 yards he missed three games but really down the stretch he had 100 yard games in three of the last five games of the year so it's going to be really massive for Travion Henderson to play at a high level if they're going to go into to Dallas and get the win and then finally how well will Devin Brown play because we know that McCord's out and McCord's been very solid but Brown this year Has played a little, 12-22 of for 197 and a couple touchdowns. He did throw a pick, but he's played in five games. He's been around enough. Or is it going to be true freshman Lincoln Keinholtz? We'll see. Either way, Ohio State and whoever their quarterback is, they're going to be well-positioned to run a very quarterback-friendly offense. And in the event in which it's Brown, he's a guy that went right down to the wire with Kyle McCord even end of the season with Kyle McCord as that quarterback derby was back and forth all the way until the very end. Agmetic Bucca, Cade Stover, Marvin Harrison, assuming all those guys go, they still have a lot of weapons at his disposal. So ends up being the quarterback. If it's Devin Brown or if it's Kyle Holtz, either way, they're going to have plenty of players available to them. And in the event, which they go with freshmen, they're still going to have dudes. So they're going to be in really good shape. I'm taking Missouri to win the game. Usually, when I'm evaluating these games, it's, it's almost always about motivation. It's always about motivation and whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And I think Missouri is going to be really fired up to be there. I can't say that for certainty with Ohio State. I can't. Now, I think Ohio State has, a, has an advantage from a talent standpoint. I think they have an advantage from a big game experience standpoint, but I think Missouri wants it more and ultimately that's why I think they'll get the win. Let's go next to Florida State and Georgia. The two teams that narrowly Missed the college football playoff. And it's crazy, too, because both rosters are going to look very different from when we saw them in the regular season just a couple weeks ago. 26 Florida State players have entered the NCAA transfer portal. And seven have decided to declare for the NFL draft. They're going to opt out of the Orange Bowl game. So they're going to be at about, gosh, 53 scholarship players in this game, thereabouts. Not going to be easy for Florida State. When you think about the fact that one guy that entered the portal is back, that's Joshua Farmer. But other than that, they're going to look very different than what they looked like in that 13-game regular season. If you look at Georgia, uh, they have had 15 players under the portal. Uh, but they've brought in four players, and really none of those players decide to go to the draft. So there should be in a pretty good spot. Marvin Jones Jr. did transfer to Florida State, but he's not draft eligible. So Bulldogs should be pretty much intact, at least at the moment. Like I said, it's not really 100% certain. Not 100% certain. But as of right now, Cedric Van Pran, their center, is going to be playing. Malachi Starks, he's going to be playing. Sounds like Brock Bowers. Uh, is dealing with an injury, so it's not likely that he's going to be available for the Orange Bowl, but still, Ladd McConkey might be back. These are all things that we're still trying to figure out, but at the moment, it should be pretty good for the Georgia Bulldogs. When you look at what Florida State has, Florida State has excellent personnel. They have really good players, so we're going to get to them in a moment, but we're going to start with the Georgia Bulldogs because their key player is Carson Beck, and he is back. He's waited a long time. As Georgia's starting quarterback... Felt like one year wasn't enough. There's unfinished business, so he has decided at the moment to return, even though I really believe that if Carson Beck put his name in the NFL draft, I think by the time the draft process played itself out, he'd probably play his way into the first round. I think he might even play his way into the top 10. I think he's that good. I really believe that. So it's gotta be frustrating that his only season as the starter, they did not make the college football playoff, and they obviously won't win the national championship. But coming off of back-to-back natties, The bar has set been very, very high. Bar has been set very high for Georgia. Now, Mike Bobo, I think, did a really good job as the offensive coordinator this year. Now, Todd Munkin filling those shoes was going to be really difficult. It's going to be really hard. But Mike Bobo stepped in, he brought Carson Beck along nicely. They didn't really open things up until they played against Kentucky week five or six that's when things really started getting going. When they played against top 20 opponents, though, Carson Beck was at his best. Completed 74% of his passes, 15 touchdowns against just two interceptions when they played against top 20 opponents. So the better the competition, the better Carson Beck seemed to play. I also think what's amazing is that he was able to navigate throughout the season without all of his weapons available on a weekly basis. There were weeks when Brock Bowers missed. There were weeks when Ladd McConkey missed. There were weeks when both missed. And then they were out without Ra-Ra Thomas, who missed multiple games there at the end of the season with a foot injury. The offensive line has also been without some great players at times. Ratledge has missed some time. Marius Mims has missed some time. His right gardeners, right tackle have both been out. But Carson Beck's been steady, and he's been the guy that's guided them to this position. And I think he'll have a big big opportunity to go against a really quality, high quality secondary that Florida State has out there in the back end. Ladd McConkey is massive. Now, he's obviously one of the most reliable, one of the most experienced, but he has had a very difficult year. Back injury early, then he had an ankle injury, didn't play until Auburn. That was on September 30th. And then he came out, played against Florida, balled out against Florida, I might add. Six catches for 135 and a touchdown when they dominated Florida. But down the stretch, there wasn't a whole lot. He sprained his ankle against Ole Miss, and we didn't see a whole lot for him. But he's an amazing route runner. He's got terrific top end speed, and he'll be the go to guy in the passing game for the Georgia Bulldogs heading into this one. If you look at how Georgia wins the game, uh, I think it's a pretty simple solution. They have to be able to run the football. They have to be able to find ways. There's going to be some young receivers out there. There's going to be some guys with a little less experience, but those guys have a ton of talent. We're going to get a really good look at what George is going to be in 2024 by watching the Orange Bowl game here in 2023. This is an offense that has great, great talent. Now, the defense is not quite the same as they've been in the past. They're excellent at safety even teetering on the edge of being super elite at safety. I would say I think they're excellent at one of the corner spots. I think the other corner is just okay, at least at this point of his development, but he has gotten better as the season's gone along. I think the defensive line is not what they've been in 21 and 22, particularly on the edges of the defense. Now, Michael Williams was a little banged up early, really never found his footing until the end of the season. He, I think, is going to be massive for them as they go into this one. Chas Chambliss already announced that he will be back next year. He, at times, has been up and down as well on the edges of the defense. So will Florida State be able to attack the edges of the defense? That's been a problem spot for the Georgia Bulldogs. Edge defense against the run. Can Florida State take advantage? But with Florida State, it's pretty simple. Uh, It's all about their personnel at the running back spot, whether it's Trey Benson, Lawrence Toafili, they're going to have to take the pressure off of Brock Glenn. Tate Rodemaker decided to enter the transfer portal. He will not play in the Orange Bowl game. So it's going to be all about being able to run the football. Now, Rodney Hill also entered the portal. So how will they divvy up the reps? I would think Toa Fili will get a lion's share. He announced that he's going to be coming back. So that is significant when you look at what he could mean for Florida State in this game. You look at the rest of the team, offensive line, for the most part, they will have a few guys that they're without. Their defensive line, they'll have a few guys that they're without. It's really unfortunate because I would have loved to have seen Florida State at full strength heading into this game. We're just not going to have that. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little frustrating, frankly, because I would love to have seen how they would have competed. Even in the absence of Jordan Travis, I would love to have seen them compete against the Georgia Bulldogs with Georgia at full strength and Florida State at full strength so we could get an assessment as to whether or not Florida State should have been in the college football playoff. I would have loved to have seen it, but I understand. Guys got to do what's best for them, and guys don't feel like playing in the matchup is worth their while. That's their own personal decision. I won't be critical. I'm just disappointed as a college football fan because I'd have liked for them to have gone out there at full strength and said, see, this is what we could do, but we're just not going to have that luxury. How does Florida State win? Their defense has to play out of their mind. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's, it's, it's pretty simple. The defense is going to have to play out of their mind. Now, we've seen him do it already. We saw him do it against Louisville. But this is a significant step up in quarterback play. With with all due respect to Jack Plummer, Carson Beck is not going to go 0 for 13 with an interception on passes that are thrown 10 or more yards downfield. Just not going to happen. I also think that it's going to be much more difficult for Florida State to cover the receivers because if you look at Louisville, if you look at some of the teams they play down the stretch, the receiver position – not quite as good as what they're going to see when they tee it up against the dogs. So they're also, I think, going to have to make sure that they continue to apply pressure. I know they're going to be without some of their key pieces up front, but can they apply pressure to Carson Beck? Because when pressure is applied, he does drop off just a little bit. Just a little bit. But going to be very important, I think, for Florida State to apply pressure, and we're going to get a good look at what they might be moving forward. But either way, Florida State's going to have their hands full. I don't see how they can beat The Georgia Bulldogs. I just don't see it. I'd love, love nothing more than for them to shock the world yet again. But I'm trying to find a pathway to victory for the Dolls. And I think the only way they do it is by turning over Carson Beck and forcing a couple short fields because I'm just not confident in a Brock led Brock Glenn led offense to consistently put drives together enough to where they can knock off the Georgia Bulldogs. And let's go finally to the Peach Bowl. This game will be Saturday. Uh, December 30th at noon Eastern time from Atlanta. Penn State is a slight favorite, about three, three and a half in that vicinity. Nothing's changed at the moment. As far as opt-outs and guys that aren't playing, tight end Theo Johnson uh, is not going to be playing. Olu Fashanu will not be playing at left tackle, and they will be without their edge defender, Chop Robinson. They also will be without Manny Diaz, who decided to leave as his as the defensive coordinator and become the head coach of Duke and currently Ole Miss is going to be without Cedric Johnson their defense end so Ole Miss for the most part intact but really when you look at what Penn State is they're a really young team so most of their guys should be back most of their guys should be up and most of their guys should be playing in this one let's start with the Ole Miss Rebels their key player is Jackson Dart uh, he's going to be coming back it's massive they had a great off season battle between him and Spencer Sanders. Where Spencer Sanders came in, highly decorated player from Oklahoma State. They also brought in Walker Howard from LSU. They also, I think we're wondering, all right, what is going to happen with Jackson Dart? Will he be able to elevate? And he has. I think he's done a great job. A great job this season. He's certainly in the upper tier amongst the quarterbacks in the SEC. He's actually 11th nationally with a 161 passer rating and joined Jane Daniels the only two quarterbacks in the SEC with more than 2,900 passing yards and more than 300 yards rushing. So he can do it not just through, his, through the air with his arm, but he can also do it with his legs. And most of those offensive weapons are back, including Quinshawn Judkins, who we'll talk about in a minute. He'll have plenty of talent at his disposal on the perimeter. The X factor in this game is going to be Quinshawn Judkins. Now, if you look at what Quinshawn Juckins did this year, it's going to be a little underwhelming based on preseason expectations, based on what he did as a true freshman at 22. But he was banged up most of the first half of the year. Rib injuries, didn't run with the same level of intensity, but he did get better as the season went along. So it's going to be massive, I think, for Ole Miss to be able to get him involved, run the football. I know it's not going to be easy, to run it against Penn State, but Michigan did find a way to victory by exclusively running the football. I don't think Ole Miss has the same type of offensive line as the Michigan Wolverines have, but I do think that the way that you can attack this defense is by taking the air out of the football. You have to run it. You have to be physical. They're an elite pass rushing unit. They're an elite athletic unit, so they have to run the football, and they have to be able to create some issues I think, for the Penn State defensive line, who's good, but they're more athletic than they are capable of holding up for 60 minutes against the run. If you look at Ole Miss, how do they win? Well, I think they're going to have to create great balance on offense. If you look at Penn State's defense, they held nine of their 12 opponents to 15 or fewer points. That's pretty dang amazing. It really is. It's amazing. This is a ridiculously athletic group. So you're going to have to have Quinshawn Judkins playing at his best to kind of limit the aggressiveness of the movement in games and the speed that this defensive front seven will play with. I also think it's going to be really important for Jackson Dart to keep plays alive with his legs. Might have to run around, might have to scramble some, and if he can, that could take some of the pressure off of this passing attack because I don't think they match up great with their receivers against the Penn State secondary. And if you look at Penn State's numbers, in rush defense, they give up just 2.16 yards per carry. That's third in the country. But I do think you're not going to hit a lot of big plays on them. They're going to be fast enough and athletic enough to recover. I think Lane Kiffin's smart enough to be able to create some misdirection, create some issues with those guys and take advantage of their aggressiveness, and maybe go the other way with some quarterback run stuff. So it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how things go with Ole Miss in this game. And as for Penn State, the key player is Nick Singleton. Uh, I mean, Nick Singleton, he is a terrific, terrific football player. We know that, all right? We know that. But if you look at how things have gone for him this year, just 700 rushing yards and eight touchdowns. Now, Catron Allen has actually eclipsed Singleton in a way, but I think in this game in particular, Singleton's speed is going to be very important. Now, Catron Allen, very, very fast as well, really fast. But Singleton's speed and the big play potential of him is something that I'll be paying close attention to. If you look at K. Tron Allen, he's kind of a bully, man. He wants to run physical. He wants to run over guys. This is a dynamic one-two punch that really complements each other well, and they combined to average nearly 187 rushing yards per game. That's 24th in college football. So you look at that one-two punch in the offensive line, even though that Olu Fashanu's not going to be playing, they should be pretty good going up against an Ole Miss defense that gave up nearly 152 rushing yards yards per game that's 67th in the country they also got gashed by Georgia 300 yards in a 52 to 17 route there in the beginning of November so that's going to be massive it's also going to be huge to take a peek at Drew Aller in this game now one thing that he has had trouble with because look he's done a good job he's been smart with the football 23 touchdowns has really been smart just one interception You love the touchdown to interception ratio, but there is a little bit, I think he can be more aggressive. I'm not saying he needs to force the football, but he's got a ton of talent. I think he can make some throws that he passed up on, but in a bowl game, man, let it all fly. Mike Yurcich was fired after they lost to Michigan because the passing game was just a, 200 yards a game or so, 204 to be exact. That was 91st. They hadn't produced enough big plays and Aller hasn't thrown for over 300 yards since the season opener against West Virginia. So they got to find some explosive plays through the year because that's going to complement the run game, which should probably have some success. You look at Keandre Lambert-Smith, you look at Tyler Warren, this defense gives up 220 passing yards a game. They're 60th nationally, so there should be some opportunities down the field in the event in which they are presented to Penn State. They have to limit Quinshawn Judkins. That's the key. That is the key. They are so stout. They lead the country in total defense. They're third in rush defense. And those stout numbers, stout, stout numbers, have allowed them to really control the line of scrimmage. The one outlier in those performances was Blake Corum going for a buck 45 there when Michigan beat him 24 to 15. Outside of that, they played really well just about all the time. But Judkins, even though he missed some time, it wasn't really at his best this year, he came on and got much better as the season went along. So if Judkins can't create some big plays, I think it could be difficult for Ole Miss to manufacture a ton of offense in this game. And if the game's put exclusively on Jackson Dart's shoulders, I'm not sure that that's a path to victory for Ole Miss. I'm taking Penn State in the game. I think they're better on defense. I think they're a young team that's probably a little ticked off with how things have gone down the stretch and the perception of their program. This would be a massive one for James Franklin as well. He has not fared well against games against top-tier competition. I believe Ole Miss is top-tier, but I think Penn State gets done, and they'll take care of business there in Atlanta. Some news and notes, just cleaning a few things up. Mike Denbrock has opted to leave LSU to become the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. He, of course, did an amazing job this year in creating big plays. If you look at LSU, yeah, they had three losses, but I can promise you it wasn't because of the performance that Mike Denbrock's unit played with. Jaden Daniels, of course, won the Heisman, so a lot to like about the hire for Notre Dame. I think it's a great hire. I really do. When Jared Parker left, you want to keep some semblance of continuity. Mike Denbrock's been at Notre Dame three times. So he understands the culture. He understands what it takes to recruit there. And for Notre Dame fans that are crazy, like our producer, Mark, I think they feel great about the fact that Marcus Freeman was able to go to LSU, steal someone from Brian Kelly, which to me is low-hanging fruit. Get over it, guys. Come on. (laughs) Jerry Kill has resigned at New Mexico State. What a great, great run. He had there, of course, taking them to back-to-back bowl games, getting to the conference championship game this year, beating Auburn in the be- biggest game of their season. So a terrific job by Jerry Kill. He's going to step down, though. What a great run. Happy retirement, coach. We thank the world of you, and we appreciate all that you've done for college football. Trevor ATN has decided to transfer from Florida to the Georgia Bulldogs. It's a weird world that we're living in. It's a weird world, man. I just you know what's crazy to me. Like I I think look, I, I get it. Like you opportunities present themselves. I get that. I don't understand. I just don't understand how you could possibly transfer to a rival. And we by the way, we see it all the time. And we saw a guy transfer from Ole Miss to Mississippi State. We've seen guys transfer now from Florida to Georgia. Uh we've seen guys trans like I get it. It like it's part of it. I The transferring to a rival, it's like they should put something in place where you're not allowed to transfer to your rival. Not because ETN did anything wrong. He didn't. It just, as a guy, if I were to think about a guy on our team when I was playing at Alabama that transferred to or from Auburn, just how awkward that would be, I I just don't get it. So totally supportive of ETN. He's a terrific player. And with the injuries that Georgia had to the running back room this year, I think it's a great spot for him to step in. He's really good. He's a three down back. He can catch the ball out of the backfield as well. I think it's a huge get for Georgia, but my goodness, man, it's just so backwards that these guys are, I get entering the portal. I'm fine with that. I have no problem with it whatsoever. Every player is entitled to their own thing. They can do whatever they want. I will never get comfortable with a guy playing for a rival after his first school. I just well, it's just, it just mind blowing to me, but I digress. Walter Nolan, the outstanding defensive tackle from Texas A and M, he was at one point the number one player in the country according to several different publications. He is transferring to Ole Miss, which is a huge get. A huge get. I mean, the rich get richer. Lane Kiffin has mastered the portal. Uh, I don't know what he does or how he does it, but he has mastered the portal. They've already gone out and added a bunch of great pieces on the defensive side, and now you have an anchor there in the middle of the defense, coming off a great year. Walter Nolan had a really good year for Texas A&M. Now you'll get him at year number three, so probably be his last year at the college level, anyways. That means he's going to have a great year. He's probably going to be. He's just thinking about his professional prospects. He's going to have a great year for Ole Miss. That was a huge get. And if you look at what Pete Golding's done on that side of the ball, they're significantly improved defensively. You look at what Walter Nolan could provide, some of the other guys they've added in the portal, what they could provide. They are certainly on the upward trajectory there on the defensive side of the football in Oxford, Mississippi. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. Wherever you're at, getting the podcast, you can go and subscribe and give us a rating, give us a, ra- uh, give us a review, whatever you wanna do, all good. We appreciate you guys for taking the time to do that and the numbers have gone up drastically drastically as a result of your involvement continue to tell your friends we're doing good work here at Always College Football so we're trying to make sure we continue to grow and we are going to preview the games the best way we know how so we hit some New Year's six games already we're going to hit the college football playoff games coming up on uh, the show tomorrow might hit a couple other bowl games as well so you don't want to miss that because we're going to have another show later in the week that you will be excited about so for all of us here at Always College Football for Mark, Jake, Jack, the other Jack, I'm Greg we hope you have an amazing day and remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcast.